The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to this Tuesday edition of Squawk Box. China's March exports surge more than 30% while imports rise at their fastest pace in four years as the economic recovery gains momentum. Alliances are tested in Germany as the two ruling Conservative parties wrangle over their candidates for Chancellor as the CDU broadly supports Armin Laschet, but CSU leader Marcus Soda pulls ahead in opinion polls. It was not a preliminary decision today. It was an opinion poll of the CDU with its 15 state associations. U.S. markets slip from record highs as investors brace for key inflation data and first quarter corporate earnings. U.S. President Joe Biden vows to support companies suffering from the semiconductor squeeze as Intel CEO Pat Gelsinger says he hopes to start producing chips for car makers within as little as six months. I believe our moonshot should be that a third of the supply of semiconductors should be back in American soil by American companies. And as CNBC continues to assess how to ensure a sustainable future, we speak to founding members of our ESG Council, Makoto Uchida from Nissan and Zurich Insurance CEO Mario Greco about their role in the Green Agenda. But we're going to kick off the program this morning talking about the Chinese economy. Exports grew at a robust rate in March, jumping 30.6% year on year. It was less than analysts had forecast, but the data still implies a speedy recovery in the world's second largest economy. Meanwhile, imports beat forecasts, growing at their fastest pace in four years, surging 38 Let's get out to Sam, who's been taking a good hard look at the numbers. Uh, Sam, interesting that we got a miss on that headline export number. Tell us a little bit more about how the analysts are now viewing that. Uh, good morning to you, Jeff. Well, as you said, uh, missing expectations there on the export side of things. But I mean, it still uh, was a solid uh, growth figure, certainly for those exports uh, in the month of March, which does signal that uh, Chinese factories are continuing to gain from this improving uh, global demand and also the fiscal uh, stimulus that we are seeing in other countries when it comes to these uh, trading partners. Uh, certainly, we do need to factor in that favourable uh, base effect in March last year when China China was still very much grappling uh, with the outbreak of the virus at that time. Since then, though, these exports have still remained uh, fairly resilient in the face of the pandemic. We have seen uh, strong demand for things like electronics out of China. We certainly did see that in the breakdown of the numbers uh, in the month of March. And uh, certainly uh, we uh, do see these vaccine rollouts now in this global recovery, and that is expected to continue to support things. Uh, just how long it will last is the big question, obviously, because we are now uh, verging towards a bit more of a normality. Uh, the other big question, of course, where you guys are, Europe is a big destination for these Chinese goods and it still remains a bit of a, a challenge there in terms of uh, the outlook in your part of the world uh, and that uh, may have an impact uh, on things because of various...
various lockdowns. But uh, I would like to highlight those imports, as you mentioned, because they were the real outperformer there. Uh, that was down to a number of things. Of course, we are still seeing domestic demand holding up pretty nicely in China as it's really uh, managed to nip the virus in the bud. But it was also largely down to these higher commodity prices in the month of March, things like oil and iron ore, which, of course, uh, does uh, make these imports more expensive. China also imported very large volumes of meat in the month of March to try to fill um, shortages domestically because we do know uh, that the African swine fever has been having an impact on China's uh, favourite meat, pork, uh, for instance. Uh, but that all brought the overall trade balance to $13.8 billion, so far from those ex estimates of around $52 billion. And that, as I said, was uh, clearly down uh, to those imports seeing a massive spike in those exports underperforming. Guys, back to you in London. Terrific, Sam. Thank you very much indeed for that. And we will talk about that number, obviously, uh, as we go through the program this morning and the reason for the miss and the consequences for the uh, chip story as well. I think that's a, a fascinating take on this uh, Chinese economy recovering. A uh, bit of news on Credit Suisse. Let's just dip into this. Um, these flashes crossing just as we come to air. Credit Suisse says that uh, Christian Gellestad, nominated for election to the board of directors of Credit Suisse, the uh, group says Urs Rona will not stand for re-election. This is the long-time chairman of Credit Suisse. Credit Suisse Group says Urs Rona will step down from the board of directors of Credit Suisse Group and also from the Swiss Entities Board of Directors. Now, we knew that uh, Rona would be leaving the board. Um, I, I think that this is a... Um, uh, 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 well, obviously... Credit Suisse is having a very difficult year, as we've pointed out, but it's not just been a difficult year. I think, as one story I read recently pointed out, under Srona's chairmanship, the bank's share price has dropped 70%. So that is not a compliment to his time as chairman of the business. And okay. obviously, continual questions about the culture over at Credit Suisse. Uh, and I think there is a job of work to be done. Time's up from a number of perspectives. The, the limit was set on the, the amount of years he could sit on the board anyway, or a 12-year term limit. But uh, time's up, I think, when it comes to the amount of scandals he's also presided over in, you know, this year, from Greensill to the Archegos fallout. It's just been extraordinary. And over the years, of course, you know, the spying scandal, tax issues with authorities, it's just went on and on. So the legacy he leaves is probably not that the greatest legacy a chairman could leave at a business at this point. Yeah, Thomas Gockstein has uh, a lot of work to do, I think, to steady the ship there, uh, particularly given the, the stories I'm reading at the moment about how hedge funds are reconsidering their position with Credit Suisse uh, as prime broker, given the reputational issues. Uh, but we will no doubt talk some more about this story over coming hours. Um, let's focus on the inflation data. Look, this is going to be the big story for the day here, without a doubt. The dollar is trading near a three-week low, while Treasury yields also slipped on Monday's session. As traders anticipate the inflation data out of the United States later today, inflation worries already spooking markets in recent weeks, with some even fearing a 1970s and 1970s style outbreak of uh, hyperinflation. Steve Leesman looks at what lessons we can take from that era and if markets should really be worried. The inflation of the 1970s left a deep and lasting scar. Those who lived through it remember the gas lines and the unemployment lines. 
Meat prices rose 25% in one year alone. Milk and dairy prices skyrocketed too, by nearly 20%. So, could it happen again? The general view is that a combination of generous government spending in the 60s for the Vietnam War and social programs, combined with the Arab oil boycotts and a monetary policy that was too easy in the 70s, all led to an inflationary outbreak. So what do we have today? Generous government spending? Check. Easy monetary policy from the Fed? Check. The Fed is at zero interest rates and pumping billions every month into the banking system. But because of the shutdowns from the pandemic, manufacturers are reporting supply disruptions. That's making it difficult to meet demand and pushing up costs and some consumer prices. And demand is coming. Every indication is that consumers are about to open up their wallets as the economy reopens. So should we brace for a return of the great inflation? Not so fast. Since peaking in 1980 at 13%, inflation has been relatively under control. The last 10 years, it's averaged just 1.7%. It's been kept down by three factors. First, technology. That's slashed the cost of everything from televisions to cars and computers. Next, globalization. That's created competition from every corner of the world and driven down manufacturing costs. Finally, the absence of an inflationary mindset on the part of consumers. Economists think it takes a belief that prices will rise in the future to create real inflation. When consumers worry that something will cost a lot more next year, they'll buy more of it now. That drives up the price because there's more demand than supply. Higher prices reinforce the belief in higher prices, and you have an inflationary spiral. In response, the Federal Reserve has to hike interest rates, as Paul Volcker did in the 1980s, plunge the economy into recession, and bring supply and demand back into balance. The Fed's interest rate policies over the past several decades has helped keep consumers from developing inflationary expectations. Almost everyone who lived through the 1970s inflation remembers how painful it was. The 20% mortgage rates, the double-digit unemployment rates, the choice between paying rent or buying milk. No one wants to go back to the future if that future looks like the great inflation of the 1970s. Steve Leisman, CNBC Business News. Steve Leesman there setting the scene ahead of the inflation number later on for today. And don't forget the market closely watching this as we no longer have the Fed trying to get ahead of the curve. Instead, waiting for the data point, waiting for the inflation number that it can see in front of it before it moves on policy down the track. So the numbers are incredibly important to the markets that have been somewhat spooked by the recent escalation in that U.S. 10-year yield with inflation number one for some of these fund managers now. But to the markets yesterday reversing by the close, fairly choppy old session that played at intraday. The market was up at one point, then aggressively down, then up again, then down into the finish. So uh, very much struggling for direction, but it can be explained as we waited out for this data point. But also earnings season, we're on the cusp of a series of report cards from the banks first up. And uh, it was interesting to note that sector was one that still rallied despite a broader pullback across the board. Apple one stock that traded lower, that was a big impact for the S&P and for the Nasdaq. Intel for the likes of the Dow. When it comes to other components, though, you know, I mentioned the banks, but Dow Jones Transports, another area of the market worth noting. This was at a record yesterday. You could see it marching high by another third of a percent that uh, contributed to the 130 percent rally we've seen 
off the pandemic low. In terms of various sectors, though, that have been uh, hitting up these fresh peaks, these are the areas financials, industrials, consumer discretionary and consumer staples, fresh appetite and these particular sectors around the rotation trade investors, while they might be pulling back on those broader indices, it's individual sectors that this rotation story is still catching hold. In terms of the uh, Treasury picture, let's just take a look at how we've been travelling morning session. 1.68%, that's the higher range of where we were trading intraday yesterday, 1.64, the low point. But don't forget the 1.77 high water mark level is what the market has been watching. We hit that level back in March. Any hot number today, we'll see how the market reacts and we try and close that gap again, Jeff. Yeah, let's just uh, fill in the blanks a little bit here. So ex-food and energy, the number's expected to come in at plus 0.2% month on month, 2.4% annualised here with a 1.3% uh, to 1.5% year on year. Those are the uh, expectations on the US inflation data. So we will be watching closely uh, through the afternoon because there is this sort of creeping sensation you feel it that markets are worried about a tightening of monetary conditions at this point. So we're going to talk a lot about that and we're going to talk a, a lot about um, debt ratings. Yeah, it's funny, you know, in the uh, low point of the crisis, we saw some extraordinary numbers, particularly on some of the survey data and services. And um, we sort of sat back and we looked at it and we just thought it was extraordinary. Mm. But so too, on the other side, if you talk about this bounce back, I mean, in the States, they're talking about a 4% inflation handle over summer. It's been many years since we've been talking about a 4% inflation number. So that'll be quite something to see the flip side of this story. Uh, coming up on the programme, a party divided. Germany's ruling Conservatives remain at odds over who should lead them into September's general election. Uh, we'll talk some more about that when we come back. Plus, for more on China's robust export growth, what it means for the Chinese economy and the rest of the world, check out the Squawk Box podcast. We'll be right back. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. The leaders of Germany's two ruling Conservative parties have called for a united front as they stand divided. The Christian Democrats and the Bavarian sister party, the Christian Social Union, remain openly split over who should stand for Chancellor in September after each backed their respective leaders, Armin Laschet and Marcus Soda. The pair have called for a decision this week. After winning the backing of his peers in the CDU, Laschet outlined his ambitions as Germany's prospective next leader. My position that I have defended for years is clear. I want a modern Germany. I want us to link the questions of climate protection with economic questions. Yes, I want to fight for us to remain an industrial country and to obtain industrial jobs. The animated Laschet there. Let's get out to Aneta for more. Aneta, we were digesting this yesterday. More events that transpired yesterday. Uh, this is both men were fighting it out for the top position and both parties fell behind each of their candidates. What happens from here 
And are there any standout likely uh, outcomes on the back of uh, strength of one party versus another? Well, actually, the only thing which could actually save Markus Söder and make him the candidate for chancellor is that the lawmakers um, do initiate some sort of revolution. Because apparently, according to reports and also to um, interviews from selected groups from the CDU, the basis of the party, so um, the different groups in the country, they are backing Söder. So they want to have Markus Söder as their next candidate candidate for Chancellor, whereas the steering committee and the head of the party or the heads of the party um, do want or do back Armin Laschet out of loyalty. They don't want to have a repeat of AKK. Just remember, she was the chairman of the CDU and shortly afterward, uh, afterwards had to resign because she was not um, powerful enough to rein in the CDU and also wasn't seen as an appropriate candidate. So Markus Söder this time stands out because his popularity is is increasing even in that very turbulent time. A, a poll from yesterday does see him as the most popular politician in Germany. So, and that was one of the reasons why he according to himself, said that he wants to run for chancellery. And he, he's now kind of threatening that um, the, actually people or personalities do win votes and not just loyalty. Take a listen of what he has to say. Never before has the union in such a short time fallen out of favor with voters in polls. Polls aren't everything. But they're a clear benchmark, and they're also a clear indication of what the population thinks. We can't disconnect ourselves from the majority of people in our country. So essentially what happens next is that today at three o'clock local time, German time, the lawmakers or the lawmaker group of the CDU is going to convene and they are going to discuss uh, most likely whether they want to fully support Zöder and uh, risk the rift with the management board, so to say, of the party, or whether they are also supporting Armin Laschet. And we don't know the exact time of when they're going to be announced, who is going to be the next candidate. Candidate, but both um, candidates were promising that we're going to needing a solution very soon. Um, yeah, perhaps by the end of this week. With that, back to you. Annetta, thank you so much for that. Uh, Christian Schultz joins us, director of the European Research uh, Group at Citigroup Global Markets. Christian, good to see you. Look, which one of these two candidates would be best for business and best for markets? Well, I think in terms of the election in September, um, what markets will be looking for is the spread to Italy. Um, so the you know the, the the position that the next government is going to take vis-a-vis -vis European fiscal integration, uh, and then perhaps the the euro, what it means for you know the cohesion of Europe more generally, uh, and so on. Now, if you think about Laschet and about Söder, um, they say very little about what they really want to do. Uh, you just heard what Laschet said about modern Germany. There's very little concrete, and the same is true for Söder. So if you look back at what they said in the past, I think Söder gets across as having more Eurosceptic instincts. So he would probably be the worst outcome uh, for markets, at least in the short term. He's been very critical of the um, rescue of Greece back in 2015 and the Euro rescue policies more generally, whereas Laschet is seen as Francophile, pro-French, so probably more positive on a European level. 
My understanding, though, is that soda is more popular with the broader public, not just uh, within the CSU or within the uh, CDU. Um, given that's the case, would, would he not be the more appropriate candidate in a national election? Uh, you would think so, yes. Uh, but Laschet also won against Friedrich Merz back in uh, January, who was also much more popular in the population than he was. Uh, and the consideration that the CDU's board has to make is who will Söder, for instance, win votes from if he does increase the voting share of the CDU? If he wins on the right, so from the FDP or from the AFD, he may not actually increase the overall size of the of the centre-right or right-of-centre camp, whereas Laschet, as being the more centrist candidate, may actually, if he performs well in the, in the campaign, win back some votes from the SPD or from the Greens and therefore increase the overall size of the, of the centre-right um, camp. So that's, a, if you like, a strategic or tactical consideration that the board has to make. Christian, I just want to ponder a little bit further the market impact of a Zoda chancellorship because you mentioned the opposition to Greece and that this could be a, a short-term market negative in terms of how he is perceived. You know, more recently, there was some opposition from Zoda for euro bonds. And if we think about the uh, amount of fiscal support that's been required across Europe to get uh, various countries out of this crisis, it has come very quickly because of the accord that has been struck between the French and the German early on in this crisis. Are you saying that Zoda would stand opposed to the, the rescue or the help that's been provided at this point uh, that we've seen in this crisis? I think when push comes to shove, uh, Zuda will also support these rescue packages or support fiscal integration or, or European Rescue Fund if, you know, if, if push comes to shove. But I think the threshold for him to support these things is higher, uh, and that could create some market nervousness. Uh, and therefore, I think Zuda would be at least a short-term negative. But there's far many other things to consider. What coalition would he be running, uh, for instance? Um, what is the situation in Europe more generally? Um, what, how much support in Parliament? What, what is his majority in Parliament? If he if he has a big majority, then he has a lot of weight to throw around. But you know, you know if, as you, exactly as you said, Zuda Zuda has these more Eurosceptic instincts. He's on record for that on several issues. And I think from that perspective, he probably be a slight short-term negative. Christian, speaking of weight, uh, Germany, when it comes to politics, it packs a punch because of uh, the uh, very strong approach that Germany takes in many of the European decisions. But when it comes to the actual election itself, markets have not often been spooked by any outcome because it seems so orderly. If there happened to be a last-minute change in uh, who the parties decide to back as the, the next chancellor so soon to the next election, does that put an air of uncertainty into future elections too? Um, possibly, but on the other hand, I mean, if you look back at the uh, regional elections we had just in uh, March, I think that the biggest thing that could happen in German politics is if the extreme parties on the right and the left were increasing their shares. And that doesn't seem to be the case. What we're looking at here is a battle, a more or less traditional battle in the center ground between the center-right parties and the center-left parties. And what the outcome after the election is likely to be is some sort of very difficult coalition building process where either the CDU or the Greens will end up being the largest party, but ultimately have to reach out across the, the divide um, to, to run the, the country. And I think that's why you know, markets never really react much to the German elections Im immediately, uh, because what they really have to look at is what the coalition negotiations then produce. Um, it's not really voters, it's the these negotiations which really determine what policy in Germany is going to be.
On the issue of policies, Christian, um, we're now in a situation where some officials are warning we could see lockdowns for another six to eight weeks in Germany. What impact is that having on voting intentions? Well, the CDU, um, the, so the Conservatives which are running the country, um, as you as you correctly said, uh, benefited greatly from the what looked initially like a very good policy response to the crisis in Germany, low death numbers in the first wave, low infection numbers, and a relatively quick reopening. It now turns out that that was probably luck, uh, and that now, where things are more difficult, uh, the pandemic management isn't great uh, at all, and that's really hurting um, the party. Of course, this can still change, um, as you said it's probably another six to eight weeks of lockdown until the vaccination program has picked up pace and then the reopening may still happen well ahead of the elections and the CDU may still benefit from it but I think overall you have to say that the pandemic management isn't great anymore and that probably voters will want some change uh, because of that it's just that they're not looking to the extremes for change they're looking at other centrist parties in particular of course the Greens. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.